0: Right, hello, 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 hello. Welcome back to Fans on the Run. That is the name of the show. I'm Ethan Alexanian, and that is my name. Again, I think I even said in the last episode. I don't know why I feel like I need to reiterate who I am and what the name of the show is when you just heard it in the in the theme song thing. Whatever. Uh, yeah, this is this is the this is the senile rambling you've all come to know and love. Uh, I'm I'm just gonna get right to it because I I really am excited to talk to our guests today. I've had a lot of people on the show. Most of them suggest names of potential guests who might be good, but very few people have been recommended to me as much as our guest today. He's an author who's written or co-written books like Black Market Beatles, which is now part of the permanent library and archives at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Nevermind Nirvana, which is also part of that same collection, and what I consider one of the greatest beetle books of the last 20 years, The Beetle Who Vanished, which is also in that same archive. He's done so many cool things and worked on so many cool projects that I can't name them all, so I won't try to. He is the Rock and Roll Detective. Please give a warm welcome to Jim Birkenstadt.
1: Hey, Ethan. It's great to be on your show, and thank you for that wonderful introduction. I appreciate that.
0: I, I worked hard on it. It's excellent. You're, you're a cool guy. I tried to give you a cool introduction. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks. So how, how are you doing on this fine fine day
1: i'm doing great it's a beautiful day here in wisconsin and uh can't complain you know things are opening up uh the covid uh, nightmare is almost over right
0: i mean as of recording this i'm getting my my second shot friday oh. so it's one step closer to everything being normal good for you good for you or whatever normal looks like now right well, normal looks like you and me going to concerts again. Normal does look like that. Yeah. I, I have I have concert tickets that I'm hoping don't get canceled. I've already had my Elton John oh. concert pushed back once. I don't want oh. that to happen twice. Yeah, I'm planning
1: to go see uh, my friend's garbage. They're playing with Alanis Morissette at the Hollywood Bowl, and that's been pushed back. Twice as well since COVID, so that'll be um, in October, and I'm going whether they they hold the concert or not. I'm just going to sit in the seats.
0: Yeah, just just kind of imagine the concert happening around you. Right. Well, anytime you
1: get to go to the Hollywood Bowl, it's pretty special, and uh, of course, I it always harkens me back to the Beatles' appearances there in '64 and '65. You know, I've seen some video, and of course. Uh, Giles Martin just finished did an album, uh, redid an album that his dad did from the Live at the Hollywood Bowl, and it's just amazing to listen to that. Uh,
0: you, you just inadvertently gave me a really good segue to one of the questions. Oh. Uh, you, you did uh, some historical research for the Eight Days a Week film, of which right. that was the soundtrack. How, yeah. how did you get involved with that?
1: Well, this goes back really to about 1998 or if you really want to go back, it goes back to 1964 <laughs> when I was a kid and there on Ed Sullivan. But uh, in 1998, I heard that George Harrison wanted to remaster All Things Must Pass. And I had some, uh, I had really, I don't know, about 20 hours of uh, unreleased recordings from that uh, time period, including a lot of acoustic demos and things. And so I just voluntarily found the name of George's assistant, Linda, and called her up and said, Hey, he might be interested in listening to all this as long as he's, you know, redoing the album. I said, we've all bought it on LP cassette, eight track CD, and now it's going to be out again on CD. It might be nice for us who've bought it before six times to have some, you know, bonus tracks. So he did put a couple on there, two or three. And now, of course, the new yeah. box set, which I also worked on, um, will have quite a bit more. But uh, back to your original question, when George was about, well, I didn't know this, but he was, you know, about to pass away and he went to his last meeting of Apple with, with Paul and Ringo and uh, Yoko and Neil Aspinall, he mentioned me at the meeting and said that I could be of, Help to them because I've been helped to him, and that um, I know, you know, like Jim knows where all these like lost recordings are buried or something like that. And Ringo asked, uh, Where's Madison, Wisconsin? And <laughs> Paul said something like, It doesn't matter, Ringo, because George knows how to get a hold of them. <laughs> but anyway, that then. And of course I didn't know about this meeting until um, a few months later. And then Neil Aspinall called me up and invited me to start working on, uh, Apple projects. Uh, in fact, the first project I worked on, worked on was, uh, the, let it be movie project that actually, they were working on that around 2001. And as you know, it's hopefully going to come out this year, years later. Uh, And then, you know, so from time to time, different projects would come up. I worked on the uh, Beatles Cirque du Soleil show. The love show. Yeah, the love show. There's a part in there where the Beatles are, oh, joking, talking. They're in the studio, kind of goofing around and stuff. And I was assigned the task of looking for some funny bits of them chit-chatting and that. And, And then, of course, I got to go to... To that premiere evening, which was really special. Um, so yeah, the the eight days a week was just another great project, and and you know that's another one that took a while. Um, I think some different people were involved in helping produce it uh, before uh, the final you know company came along, and. Uh, So I was in on it fairly early doing a lot of research on live, um, live recordings around the world and such. And it's funny because you're in Toronto and one day, um, the CEO at Apple sent me an email and said, did, did the Toronto show by the Beatles ever get bootlegged?" Uh, and just out of the blue, he picked Toronto and I, I you know did some research and found that there were just a couple sort of partial song clips from video probably taken by the the local news channels but that no one had uh, done any sort of full recording that I had found uh from the Toronto
0: show which is a damn shame cuz I'd really like to hear that
1: Yeah I think there's an audience recording that I recall that uh, from the 64 Montreal show but I have not seen a complete Toronto show.
0: I was going to say, I know the Vancouver show has been bootlegged to death.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's that's on, I think, is like a soundboard or else recorded really close to the PA system. That's a good quality show, Vancouver.
0: But, but having George Harrison bring you up at an Apple meeting, that's got to be like the ultimate feather in your cap. Well, suggesting you to the other Beatles.
1: It's been such an honor to work with George and and then Olivia and Danny. I mean, they are the nicest people on the planet. They're, they're just really special people. And it's just been a wonderful honor and privilege for me, uh, to be asked to help them and, and to help them. It's just, it's very special. There's no, you know, uh, going back to 64 65 when I would be reading the back covers, looking for information and all that on the LPs, my dream as like a nine or 10 year old was to work for the Beatles someday. So the fact that it happened is, uh, some pretty good karma.
0: Oh, you, you said you worked on that, uh, the remaster of the Let It Be film in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. Um, I, have th- there was another guest on my show, Steve Mateo, who, uh, He was talking about that. I want to hear from you. How far along did that get before the, before the plug got pulled?
1: Well, that, I I don't know exactly. I, I don't know when or why I just did my part, you know, to try to help find some lost, um, audio here and there. And, uh, I don't know you know, back then they were kind of working off the idea of the, the original film as it was originally filmed and then edited, which as we know, was sort of a, a downer or a, you know, not the happiest version of that time period. And it, I think that created a lot of myth- mythology around that because having listened to all of the A and B roll and and there's a bit of C and D roll audio of the entire month of recording for that film, I I can just tell you that it's probably 95% everybody happy and having a good time and 5% a couple of little grumblings here and there. And, you know, one of them was shown in the original film. So I thought it was cool that they got a new fresh perspective from Peter Jackson Um, it'll be interesting to watch that from what I've heard and of course from the trailer that many of us have seen online it looks to be much more in keeping with the way I believe the sessions took place that were you know much more friendly and cordial
0: Uh, from from what I've seen and heard I, I haven't heard all of the 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 83 disc bootleg of January (laughs) but it it seems like the mood kind of improved once they they headed over to Saddle Row and left Twickenham
1: yeah Twickenham is kind of a downer place I mean
0: it's it's just a big sound stage with all these lights shining on them
1: yeah big big sort of cavernous empty you know film building and it's just not conducive to the closeness and then also remember one of the other big points when they moved to Savile Row was that George brought in Billy Preston mm-hmm. and everybody liked him being in the band being you know and playing music on most many of the songs and and it, even just when they were jamming you know loosely jamming together it was, it was just a really positive uplifting thing to bring Billy into it and uh you know good on george for for thinking of that
0: so uh you, you mentioned earlier how your your involvement kind of started like 1998 but it also could have started back in 1964. Let, let's go back to 1964. how did you first discover the beatles
1: well the first thing i saw my mom showed me i was eight years old my mom showed me the chicago tribune that's where we lived at the time <laughs> in the chicago area And on the front page, which, you know, usually it was like bad stuff on the front page of the Chicago Tribune, but here were these four guys and it was that famous shot of them having a pillow fight, which I think took place in Paris. And, uh, she said, this group is going to be on the Ed Sullivan show Sunday. And I want you to see them. You know, it sounds like they're pretty interesting group. And I said, oh yeah, look at, they're having a pillow fight. That looks great. So I thought that this was gonna be like uh, Laurel and Hardy or the Marx Brothers or some sort of slapstick comedy segment on the Ed Sullivan Show. I had no idea that they played instruments or that they were a band. I didn't, at eight, I don't think I bothered to read the article. I just looked at the picture and it said, these are the Beatles having a pillow fight in a hotel room and I thought that's cool. So I thought it was comedy. So boy was I shocked when they came on and they were, you know, playing, I want to hold your hand and she loves you and such. And I was blown away because the music prior to that on the radio was so, I don't know. It was just so like formulaic and sappy. That's another word I would say it was, it was sappy music. From, from the, oh, sorry. I was just going to say, and then all of a sudden these guys just explode with this loud, amplified rock and roll and great harmonies and, and, you know, these great riffs and things that just locked you in. And so that was it.
0: I I was going to say, from from my impression of, like, the the American music business and the charts and stuff, it seems like rock and roll kind of decayed from, like, you know, say, from when, you know, Buddy Holly and Richie Valens died big bopper to where the Beatles it just kind of dipped and there was you know all these you know teen idols and it just got stale. I was
1: really too young I had missed the whole 50s rock scene um so I, I was born in 56 and so you know I didn't know what was going on really until I was about eight which was when the Beatles came along and uh what a what a blast, you know, to see these guys rock out like that. And, of course, the, the crowd was going crazy, so it was very electric. And, I, and after that, the first thing I said to my mom afterwards, besides thanking her for putting me in front of the TV, was, you know, can you get me one of their albums?
0: So, wh- which was the first album you got?
1: The first album was uh, Meet the Beatles, and I think my mom bought the first one, and then... Uh, My dad said, if you're going to be buying their records from those long haired boys, you have to get a lawn mowing job and and save up your money and then you can buy these records. I'm like, all right, I'll do that. So I started working on doing people's lawns so I could save up to buy uh, whenever a Beatle record came.
0: it, from from my conversations with people in the in the Chicagoland area, it seems that you know in the '60s, you know when the Beatles were happening, Chicago radio was just out of this world. Well, yeah. What do you remember about you know stations like WLS?
1: I remember WLS and WCFL, and that uh, Clark Weber and some of these other DJs became like almost as uh, big as the rock stars uh, in the middle sixties. You know, like I talked to girls who I grew up with, they used to go downtown to these radio stations and, you know, wait outside and squeal, squeal and scream for the DJs to come out. And the DJs were playing the Beatles and the Stones and Motown and, you know, all this great music and, and they themselves became famous, which I thought, you know, thinking back, that's pretty interesting.
0: Who who was your favorite DJ back then?
1: I was trying to remember. Well, Clark Weber was one, but there was a guy at Larry Lujack. He who was a Larry Super CFL, WCFL, and both were AM radio stations. And he was uh he was a little more funny and, you know, I don't know. I think he just he just had a little more attitude. Clark Weber, to me, was just a guy that would say, "Hey, now we're going to play the Beatles singing blah blah blah," you know. And he was just a typical DJ from the era. But because you heard him every day, it's sort of like these DJs kind of became your friend, even though you might never meet them. Uh, yeah. But they were, you know, playing your songs, and people would call in and say, "Hey, would you play this again?" And there was this rule, like you never play a song back to back. But Larry Lujak, if he liked the song and everybody was calling in and they liked the song, he'd say, I'm breaking the rules, guys. And he would play the song a second time back to back. And, you know, I'm sure management would lecture him. But no one cared because his ratings were good and the fans loved it that he broke the rule.
0: There's always these big questions like where where were you when when Kennedy was assassinated? Where were you when 9-11 happened? Where were you when the Beatles went psychedelic? Oh,
1: that's a great one. Um, well, first we should probably think about what... Are we talking about Magical Mystery Tour? Or are we talking about going to India? You know? let,
0: let, let's let's draw the psychedelic line at when the Strawberry Field single came out.
1: Okay. I was uh, probably, let's see, I was about 11, and you know I was going to school, and I remember... Actually, the thing I remember is not the single, but, you know, what, summer, summer 67, I came home from uh, mowing lawns and everything, and it was my birthday, and it was in June. And I came home, and on my record player, my brother had propped up Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, and he had a little sticker on it, and he said, happy birthday, Jim, you know, hope you like this and i thought oh great another beatles album and i don't have to save up for it and i didn't even i never knew when they were coming out it's i don't know how i found out cuz there was no internet then yeah. or anything it's just word of mouth but he knew because he was quite a bit older he was uh, in high school i think
0: so, it's always the older brothers who know these things yeah. yeah so he gave me that and i immediately
1: put it on and of course that that's a pretty trippy album and i remember going to him and saying this is different than, than some of the past Beatle records. It's like, I don't even know what to make of it. And then he explained LSD to me and as As an older brother does. Yeah. As the older brother does, he explained, you know, getting high and all this and how it expands your mind and that the Beatles, he said are obviously doing something and, and their experiences then, allow them to make this psychedelic music. And he said, that's why it's more out there and not as maybe structured as as you were used to with the older Beatles stuff. And so sort of like once he explained that to me, it it just sort of gave me a greater appreciation for the music and, and it was, that was what I remember as like the first time I was exposed to psychedelic music. And then from there, he turned me on to like the Jefferson Airplane and yeah. The grateful Dead and things like that. So it was, it was cool having an older brother, you know, who was more tuned into what was going on.
0: And then, you know, a, a kind of a sadder. Where were you? Question: Where were you when you found out that the Beatles had broken up? Okay. Actually, no. I'm going to go back a bit. Yeah. So, you know, I would love talking to people about this, and you, you're just the right age that you, and from what I've, from what I've gathered when we we're spoken... It seems like he could have been into this. So the whole Paul is dead rumor. Oh, yeah. Thoughts?
1: Yes. Um, I was completely fascinated with that whole conspiracy and looking into where it started and all that kind of thing and, and the clues and holding the record up to the mirror and seeing, you know, some supposedly a phone number from the magical mystery tour lettering on the cover and all that stuff.
0: Which which so might I, was, I add, that's my favorite one because the people who actually believe this stuff or the people who wrote the clues never could uh line their stories up with each other. So it right. ended up being like one of seven different phone numbers or something. I know. <laughs> Depending on how you interpreted the Yeah. No, nah, man, that's a 3, that's not an 8.
1: That's not an eight. I remember that. I remember the argument over three and eight. And I, you know, um, I was so into it. And, you know, reading any sort of newspaper articles or later, maybe shortly after there was, uh, there was probably a Rolling Stone article. And then I think um, some of those sort of teen fanzine magazines and things. It's so weird to think there was no internet. You know, we were we were just waiting for pieces of paper to be on sale for us to buy a magazine or something at the drugstore. But, um, so I got really into it and I got, I guess, I gained some sort of expertise and I was telling kids this, we were in eighth grade and I was telling my friends, you know, during recess or whatever, we'd be talking about it. And so one of the girls, Muffy Watson, I believe, told the teacher, that the eighth grade, whatever it was, it's like a political science, but they called it something else. I told him that I was an expert on this. So (laughs) he assigned me to come up and present the whole Paul is dead conspiracy theory to the class for like a half an hour. And then, uh, which I, I enjoyed. that was, I think, probably my first public speaking in front of anybody. And it was really a lot of fun and then people had questions and then they wanted to know you know do you believe Paul's dead and uh and i think at that point life magazine had caught up to paul and i had gotten that issue and there he was you know pictured on his farm and all that saying i'm i'm definitely not dead so uh do you that's, know why i can
0: do you know why that's so relatable? I I, I ended up doing the same thing in, in my high school media studies class. My cool. teacher knew I was a Beatle freak and asked me to, you know, talk in front of the class about Paul being dead and to bring in the old albums.
1: Right. Yeah, I did the whole thing and you did the whole thing. That's yeah. really
0: cool. You have, you have to hold the mirror up to the bass drum and then it would say, one, 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 X, he die. <laughs> that i think that was the hardest sell well i think
1: the the thing that people liked about the presentation was i asked him to bring in a record player and you know doing the white album backwards or whatever that was all kind of cool uh,
0: just just a rough estimate how or how many uh, white albums and sergeant pepper albums do you think you're responsible for kids wearing out playing them backwards
1: oh i only I can't take responsibility for that one. No, I, you know, there were only like probably 20 kids in the class. So, but, you know, I, I, you know, after a while, uh, you know, there must've been about there's 12 or 15 books written about it. So I'm sure those books have probably caused people to go out and, and turn the records backwards and such. That
0: that's one of the one of the biggest benefits of digital stuff it's you don't have to you know turn the record backwards with your finger to hear John say Paul is a dead man
1: yeah you can just push a button and digitally it reverses the track that's yeah
0: pretty cool so so, uh, jumping back or jumping forward in time uh, you were talking about you you know this Wild West no internet learning all you can from the papers uh, you you and Belmo wrote um, Black Market Beatles back in the 90s. Right. How how did the research process look for a book like that in a pre-internet age? Well, that, that's oh, yeah. that's my favorite question to ask authors, you know, from who've written books like that.
1: Yeah, that was really cool. Well, he and I, before we knew each other, I think Belmo was living in Alaska at the time. And I was living in the, where was I living? I was in Wisconsin, I guess. But prior to that, I'd lived in Chicago. And I would grown up going to various stores that carried bootlegs. And I, I think I bought my first bootleg in 1970, probably, at um, what we used to call a head store.
0: And- oh, I know. The, the, you know, incense and the...
1: Yeah, black, and
0: blacklight posters.
1: Blacklight posters of Jimi Hendrix and underground comics and really cool posters from concerts. It was like, uh, well, like Macy's department store of all this underground stuff. And it was in Chicago, actually, in an area that um, is now where Second City has been for many years for comedy, just like you have Second City yeah. in Toronto. Uh, so it was really cool to go in there. And I, that was when I spotted um, Sweet Apple Tracks. And the guy, I said, what's that? And he goes, it's a Beatle album and it's two, uh, two record set. And it's them just rehearsing and jamming and stuff. And it turned out to be early leaks of uh, Get Back recordings, you know, from the Get Back, Let It Be filming. And boy, I was hooked on bootlegs after that. Beetle bootlegs and of course they had broken up or they did break up in spring of 1970 and from then on I thought oh there'll be some solo albums but there won't be beetle albums so that's what kind of led me to start collecting and back then people learned first about um first learned about how to get a hold of these things through the mail from the back pages of Rolling Stone magazine So there'd be mail order ads, and it'd say, if you want, you know, rare Beatles, it was always rare, rare Beatles, rare Stones, rare Bob Dylan, those were the big three then, send us a dollar and we'll send you our list, and then from there, you'd send them money and tell them what you want, and then they'd mail you back the uh, record album. And so a lot of what you learned was just by listening to these rare recordings, there wasn't there weren't too many people really writing about it yet, but then uh, from Canada, there was a place called, a guy named, well, I can't remember his name, but he, he came out with a publication called Hot Wax. And he was uh, connected with bootleggers. Like he was a big fan of collecting bootlegs. He somehow found out who the bootleggers were and then they would feed him information, which he would then feed to us, the collectors. Uh, and then Belmo started a, a Beatles bootleg newsletter, which I subscribed to. And there was another guy that had one that was on the Beatles. So when, whenever you could, you know, or if, if Rolling Stone had an occasional article on bootlegging, just whatever it was, I would, I would pick up on it. I think I learned more too, by going to the early beetle conventions. Back then the bootlegs were right on the tables. Uh, yeah. in plain sight, and, and those people had a distant connection to the bootleggers, so you learn information from them, and as long as you were buying bootlegs, they'd tell you all kinds of stuff, and
0: usually- They'll tell you whatever you wanna hear.
1: <laughs> right, and uh, what's funny is over the years when uh, bootlegging was cleared out of the main flea market for Beetlefest, Um, for example, most of the fests I went to were in Chicago. I've been to a few in New York, so
0: I'm not sure how New York worked, but I have a feeling I I know where this is going. Yeah.
1: But maybe some of your listeners don't, but when there were no bootlegs on the tables, there'd be one guy sitting at a table with white cloth on the table and nothing else. And, and, you know, I'd be walking around with Belmo and he'd go, Oh, let's go to this guy. Why? He goes, you'll see. And the guy would say, Oh, Hey, Belmo. Room 342. <laughs> and upstairs we went, and there'd be an entire room full of, uh, well, started out as LPs, vinyl, then there were CDs and VHS, and later CDs and DVDs. And I swear to God, this same guy got room 342 every year. I don't know how or why. He kept asking for the same room. And so it was always easy to find him, even if he didn't have someone downstairs to tell people so you know it just it was a network that you developed uh by friends with friends and, and over time to you um when we got into all with all doing cassettes i i think we all had networks of people around the world who i'd say hey i have a cassette of this what do you have he'd send a list and then we'd just trade and then later that that happened with cds once we all could record you know on our pc or whatever
0: um i i had a feeling you were going to bring up the uh the infamous beetle bootleg rooms
1: room yeah those you know so many laughs you know from from the years of going up to those rooms uh sometimes there were competing guys and they were sharing a room and they would be arguing with each other (laughs) over stuff. And like, that was my bootleg. No, it's not. And you know, they're all wasted. And it was just a lot of, a lot of funny stories from going up there. And then sometimes there were rock and rollers up there, like the guy from the smithereens. I can't remember his name, but he's a big Beatle fan. He was always up there. Uh, some guy that was like on Good Morning America doing the weather. I remember seeing him up there and uh, sometimes a member of Wings or, you know, there's always always some famous people that would would go up there, too, because they want they were collectors.
0: Um, well, what would you say, you know, because, you know, over 50 years have passed since those first Beetle bootlegs. Do you have a favorite Beetle bootleg? Hmm. It could be, would, you know, from an artwork perspective, could be from what's on it. It just I would
1: say, yeah, that I mean it'd be great to run downstairs and look at them, but that might take an hour or two and people might not want to tune in anymore. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll just, I think, go with the first one. I really, the fact that I picked sweet Apple tracks and the quality was great and um the beatles were laughing and joking and tuning and you know jamming and i was hearing the thing that struck me about it the most was not you know the artwork was okay was was printed color cover and all and i still have it but the thing i enjoyed was this was the creative evolution of songs that we later heard on the radio or bought the record and to hear these very early versions of things where they don't even have all the words yet and they're just plugging in words because they've got a song in their head. That whole creative evolution is what really hooked me on the bootlegs. You know, the live shows were, were cool, but for me, it was hearing artists in the studio working on on the songs uh, that became the ones that sort of became the framework for our our growing up.
0: Um- I think you may be a very good person to ask about this. My my personal favorite Beatles bootleg is one that I don't know too much about. All I know is I have it and it's one of the it's either the best purchase I've ever made or it's the worst. It's The Beatles versus The Third Reich. What can you tell me about that?
1: You know, I remember that one is that maybe some of the Hamburg recordings? It is
0: It is the Hamburg recordings.
1: Yeah. So, you know, there've been so many, uh, titles given to those, but you know, basically those are those recordings that were made when, uh, they were playing in Hamburg very young and it was a single microphone and I think the guy hung it from the ceiling and. You know, I like them because that's, you're hearing the Beatles very young, very raw. They're really rocking out. Um, You know, I can't speak to that, your specific album, but, you know, now I think that all the material that has been found, including sometimes they'd call up like a waiter and he would sing and the Beatles would back him up and such. But I think all told, there's like a four or five CD set now of that stuff so there is more material than, than you have Oh, <laughs> and I it's funny because the Beatles were offered those recordings and they passed on them uh, and I think there was like an official two record set that came out or gray area yeah.
0: I, I think it came like, out around like nearly the same time as the live at the Hollywood Bowl stuff
1: right yeah they both came out around I think 1977 if my yeah. memory is correct and uh I liked them both, you know, it was kind of cool because one is the Beatlemania, height of Beatlemania and the other is very early on. That's why there's another old one from like, I don't know, May of, it May of 1960 maybe, where they're just playing at someone's house and I think Stu Sutcliffe might still be on bass and there's no drummer and they're just, you know, really young they're practicing and rehearsing, and that's pretty cool stuff to hear. The Great Beatles at such an early age, you know, working on their craft.
0: Going from you know purely unofficial to now official, you know, we, we talked talked little or we talked not little uh, at the start of the show about your official work with the Beatles and the Harrison Estate. What has been, if you if you can pick one, your your favorite project that you've worked on? in an official mm-hmm. capacity. Wow. And there's That's been a few.
1: <laughs> yeah, there have been a few. Well, from a, a recording standpoint, I would say I really enjoyed working on the Dark Horse Years box set, which was a set of George's albums. Um, but probably the most fun I had and, and the biggest honor of all was when Olivia Harrison asked me to be the historical consultant for George's history uh, and to work on the Martin Scorsese film, George Harrison living in the material world. That was like about a, it was, I think a three year project and I got to do a lot of fun research and just digging into things or, you know, Olivia might send me a text or call me or something and say, Hey, do you remember a scene where George is doing this or that? And he's wearing a thin tie, (laughs) you know, or something like, she'd give me some clues. She goes, I remember this, I just can't find it. And then I go, give me, give me a few minutes. And I would uh, go, Oh, I think I know what it's from. And then I have a, I've created a database for my archives. So it's just like, you know, Googling something. But it's, it tells me where to find it in my archives. And then I, it was a video and I put it on and I said, I think this is it. And then I sent it to her in England. And she goes, that's it. That's it. So, you know, those, those times were really fun being able to respond quickly to things that they were looking for. Um, I would say one of the cool times that I remember was that I was working with, uh, David, His name's David, I think. I want to say Tedesky, but I'm not sure if that's the right last name. But he was the editor on the film. And he had me out to New York. And he said, I want to show you clips because you're so familiar with George's career. And we want to give the fans as much fresh footage as possible. We we don't want them to go, oh, I've seen this clip a million times. Yeah. So I sat down with him and. Each time we'd watch a clip, he'd say, all right, is that one, you know, overused or is that one new or whatever? And there was this one clip where I was completely blown away. I said, I've never seen this before. And it's a scene in the movie where George is in a, looks like he's in a TV control room and he's watching the Beatles perform a long time ago. Oh, and I think he's wearing the Cracker Box Palace a vest at the time while he's there and he's I think he's making fun of the Beatles while they're watching and it's a great scene and I said oh my god I've never seen this I said I'm willing to bet that this was never broadcast anywhere on tv and that it was mislabeled in a film can and you're just finding it now and he goes how could you possibly know that and I said, well, I am the rock and roll detective. <laughs> but I, I you know, the, I, is that the, the real... one
0: where he, they're watching uh, this boy? like I think so, yeah. Yeah. And George black is and like, white. John was as blind as a bat. He never wore right. glasses.
1: That's it. That's the scene. And uh, it turns out that it's true. It was never broadcast because it got mislabeled and went into this. TV stations, archives, so they never broadcast it and they didn't find it until Scorsese started working on this movie and, and they found it, it was mislabeled as something completely unrelated to the Beatles or George Harrison. And so it was fun to be able to let them know this is totally new and fresh. And it's a great, it's a great scene to see George, you know, poking fun at John and, and seeing themselves.
0: How much of the the kind of mythical lost Beatles stuff out there do you think exists in like mislabeled film cans and TV stations?
1: Well, you know, at this late date, given that there was a lot of searching that went on for the Beatles anthology, a lot went on for the George Harrison film we just spoke about and eight days a week, all the live stuff. Like I found I found Japanese police security footage of the Beatles performing at the Budokan. (laughs) Japanese security footage? Yeah. You
0: really are the rock and roll detective.
1: (laughs) But but that just popped into my head, but it was really, those three projects, and I didn't work on the anthology, but those three projects, people were really digging around, looking for anything so I don't know how much is still out there mislabeled or, or unseen or unfound. Um, you know, there may be, I'm sure there's some home demos we haven't heard. Uh, and certainly you you have to think about the whole solo careers of the four Beatles, I'm sure there's a lot more material there, although Paul's been coming out with those big deluxe box sets for his solo albums, but. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't think there's a large amount out there because I think a lot of these film projects have uncovered things quite a bit.
0: I, I'm starting to lose hope. Uh the the I I'm I'm still holding out hope that one day someone's gonna find those old top of the pops performances, the Beatles. That would there. be cool. I I, but, I remember you know- there was a Things guest were that, wiped in those old days, you know, to save money. Well, but then you occasionally hear, like with those other BBC shows, like, oh, look at that. Nine missing episodes of Doctor Who found in Nigeria.
1: Right. Well, and, you know, sometimes a producer might have said, well, they want me to throw these out. I'm just going to take them home or some technician. And they're in their attic, and not until they die does their, do their children maybe find or their widow finds these things, and they look at them and go, oh, this, this might be of interest to people.
0: There was a guest who I, I had on the show back in December who said they one of their friends um, knows of the 66 Top of the Pops performance being in some Japanese collector's private collection.
1: Well, if there's anyone who would know, and this guy might be interesting for you to uh, interview, it might be Ron Furmanek.
0: Have you heard of him? I, I recognize the name from the uh, from all those Apple credits.
1: Right. He worked with Apple, I believe, in the 90s. And he sort of knows where a lot of the the video bones are buried. Uh, and he's just an interesting guy. Um he might, he might be someone to, to ask those questions,
0: though. Well, if he'd come on the show, I'd ask him. Yeah. First, I need to find out how to contact him. Right. <laughs> um, so, well, th- this is, uh, you know, referred to you as the Rock and Roll Detective. Where, where did the name come from? Who, who bestowed you the name of the Rock and Roll Detective?
1: I think it was, um, I, I believe it was Neil Aspinall. Uh, who who said that to me. Um, at a we I was I was in England actually looking for Jimmy Nickel and <laughs> I didn't get to know that. that you know and I had found his apartment and I was gonna go there but I the day or two before I uh, contacted Apple said so I'm in London and, and they invited me over. And so I had a meeting there at in the boardroom, that it's just so amazing to sit at the boardroom in one of the chairs that the Beatles sit in, and you know they're having their when they have their annual meetings or semi-annual and and Neil popped in for a little while to talk, and uh, you know it's just it was I think it was just a sort of a little funny funny joke on his behalf, you know. I like, go, oh, there's the rock and roll detective, and and that just kind of stuck with me. And then a few years later, I decided to trademark it and and call my company Rock and Roll Detective and such. So
0: now, it's a great I,
1: honor. I mean, just meeting Neil Aspinall a couple times is a great, great honor. He he was really funny and witty, just like the Beatles. And he loved them and, and protected them and, and tried his best for them every single day of his life.
0: And he gave you a nickname. And he gave me a
1: nickname. That's right. <laughs> yeah. He was, he was amazing. I, uh, the last time I saw him was the night of the Cirque du Soleil Beatles thing that he had, uh, invited me to. Oh, and I don't know, if your listeners know this, but the invitation was an actual 45 and a 45 sleeve all designed with the Cirque du Soleil love stuff. And the, the label on the 45 is what kind of invites you to the, to the event, which is amazing. And then I was just going up to the, I went up to the ticket place, just the ticket window, just to pick up the tickets and, and, I was looking in the envelope. I wasn't looking for anyone else. I was just looking at the envelope to see what was in there. And the two tickets were front row center, which completely blew me away. And then behind it, it said, the Beatles would like to invite you to the VIP after party. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Really? Did it say and the Beatles I'd would like up... to invite you? Yeah. I would look up and there's neil aspinall standing there with a big smile and like oh my god neil do you know what's in here he goes yeah i i know it's in there i i arranged it i said oh i can't thank you enough. this is just this is just too amazing and um he's like well you know we appreciate all of your help blah 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 you know he's very matter of fact and so we chatted there and and it was uh it was Quite the evening, I have to say, the the people next to us, there was this guy next to us in a big tuxedo. So we're standing there just, you know, waiting for people to stream in. And this guy goes, who are you? And I said, I'm Jim dad. And he goes, yeah, but what are you doing in these seats? You're right in the center. And he was off center by like two seats. And I said, well, Neil, Neil Aspinall gave him to me. I don't know. He goes, he did, did he? I said, well, who are you? <laughs> And he said, well, I'm the guy that owns the Mirage. <laughs> and he was unhappy because <laughs> he was two seats to the left. He and his wife, and my wife and I were right in the center. I'm like, dude, you're right in front of the stage. You know, you can see everything. Oh, that is incredible. But it was pretty funny that that's who
0: this guy Because he's like, who are you? He's giving me the third degree. So I gave it back was there anything on that 45 invitation
1: yeah I have it framed downstairs but i I can't remember exactly what it uh, what it says
0: no I mean did it
1: play oh I don't think there was any as I recall I tried playing it i I remember I think it was just no nothing on no recording on there uh. but it still is kind of a, a cool way a cool thing for an invitation to be a 45.
0: Speaking of looking for Jimmy Nickel. Yes. You you spent a while looking for Jimmy Nickel.
1: Many years.
0: What what was the what was the origins of of the you know aforementioned beetle who vanished book? What was the like the motivation for it or The the motivation and what 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 you know started you on this path?
1: Well, I guess I always thought this guy only ever got a one sentence mention in Beatle books, you know, uh, Ringo fell ill during the 1964 tour. Jimmy Nichol filled in for him. And, uh, until Ringo came back to Melbourne and that, that would be about it. And you'd never see any more about it. So I always, I just, it was just curiosity. I'm like, well, how did he get picked? How was he selected? and why and what was it like prior to that for him you know what did he do to put himself in that position to be asked to be the drummer and and then my next question was what was it like being being an everyday guy you know just some drummer and and now all of a sudden girls are tearing your clothes off and screaming and taking pictures and you're in limousines with the Beatles what's that like? And what's it like to be on stage with the Beatles and perform? I mean, imagine the pressure uh, of having to, you know, drive that bus with the Beatles and and drive the rhythms for every song. That's a lot of pressure. And then what do you do with the rest of your life after you've been to the top of the entertainment mountain? How does someone who's 25 years old deal with that um, 15 minutes of, of fame. And I thought that, uh, Butch Vig, who's a drummer and he produced Nirvana, Smashing Pumpkins, Foo Fighters and many others. And in fact, he's produced one Paul McCartney track. Um, he said, this is a fascinating and mysterious must read for hardcore Beatle fans and anyone who wants to understand the meteoric rise to pop stardom and the subsequent crash landing. And I think that kind of really sums it up. And I I actually think that's why um, the Orbison, Roy Orbison's family wanted to option the book for a film because they're fascinated, they too, you know, have seen how you can shoot to fame and be up there for a while, uh, but at some point you have to come down. And how do you deal with that? And even Roy Orbison, you know, was very big in the fifties and early sixties. And then there was sort of a dry spell. And then, uh, he started recording with Jeff Lynn and of course the traveling Wilburys and, you know, things went up again, you know, and everybody's realized how great he is and appreciated his, his voice and his music. Uh, it's just a shame he, he had to pass away because I think he would have had an, a really another long extended uh, series of success. But I think they they just found that an interesting story of a young man who catapults to fame suddenly and then what do you do the rest of your life? So I think that's that's kind of one of the angles of the film. It's really not necessarily a Beatle film other than there will obviously be scenes of him touring with the Beatles but it's kind of like you know how, how do everyday people deal with sudden fame and and what happens when it's gone I,
0: I can't even imagine what the, the lasting psychological you know impact is of you know being dropped in basically like a pressure cooker for mm-hmm. like a less than a month I think less than a month yeah. and then being you know immediately plucked out
1: Right. Like, like one minute you're in the Beatles
0: and the next minute you're not in the Beatles.
1: Right. I just got an email from a guy who, I guess he had listened to another podcast I'd done. And he, his turns out his grandfather was on the flight that Jimmy took back from Melbourne to London when it was all over. And he said that his grandfather related to him that he said, my grandfather hated the Beatles, thought they were stupid, but he felt bad for Jimmy because Jimmy was sitting there staring at the gold watch that Brian Epstein had given him and just looked very forlorn and, you know, as you were describing, you know, how do you deal with that, that sudden, you know, being yanked off the, the fame bus so quickly. So he said the, that his grandfather felt so bad for him That he gave him a free drink, and he said they never gave people free drinks back in those days. They charged everybody. So um, I thought that was kind of a nice little anecdote. That's what's kind of interesting is that after you write a book and it gets out into the world, people contact you and say, "Oh, I knew this person, or I was there, and this is what happened." Um,
0: The the book's been out for a few years. Mm -hmm. Has there been any update on? on the search for Jimmy nickel.
1: Well, I would say the only update is I tried to hire, or I did hire this guy who is a, um, a, sort of an international real detective, not a rock and roll detective and uses the internet as well as other techniques to try to find people. And I gave him what I had, which were, um, clues and information that had been provided to me by Jimmy's cousin. And it appears that Jimmy's cousin was really the last family member to have any contact with Jimmy, uh, cause he and, and his son, Howie became estranged. Uh, I think Jimmy's mother has passed on. Uh, so, and I think his first wife had passed away. So. The cousin believed he had moved back to Mexico and has married another woman who is also from Mexico and that he's just hiding out there. I've checked with Julia, his second wife, who he married in Mexico in the, in the mid to late sixties, and she said she's checked around with all the sort of artsy people that they used to hang out with and no one has seen him. So. Uh, and this, this detective guy I hired came up with nothing. So uh, I think he's still alive because I think that if he died, someone who knows him or lived near him would talk to the media and, it, and the story would get out there. You know, even when someone who, you know, whether it's a tailor for the Beatles or a driver for the Beatles or somebody dies like that, yeah. Seems to be a worldwide news story, so they they at least
0: get like a blip in like the Daily Mail or something,
1: right? So I think Jimmy is still alive, uh, and I suspect he's either in Mexico or somewhere in South America. But um, he, I think he's staying off of the internet. And um, I did, oh, I did find out that uh, from a detective in England that he, he, he has like a pension and the, you know, like we have social security in in uh, America. So that type of thing. And that every month a check is cut by the government and it leaves the country, but they can't tell where it's going.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I don't even know how they found out. How, how are they tracking somebody's pension check? But you know, some questions you don't want to ask. And uh, the other thing they said was that um, they were Tracking like drug prescriptions, medications of his somehow, and they they said that also every month certain medications uh, prescription or something is wired out of the country somehow. So that that tells me he's alive, but where is the question? And they they couldn't tell where things went once the they left England.
0: It's the the whole Jimmy Nichols story is, I think, one of the, it, I think it is the most fascinating footnote in Beatle history. It is, yeah. And as a result, you've written, I, I said it at the start of the show, and I, I don't, you know, bullshit. It's, I think it's one of the greatest Beatle books of the last 20 years, if not of all time.
1: Well, I, you know, one of my goals was to write a book that relates to the Beatles that hasn't been done before. You know, I, I, did, I don't want to recycle a story like, you know, I would never write a book about is Paul dead, for example. There's been too much of that. Um, I don't think there are many different angles that are left that haven't been done before. But to me, this was kind of an interesting way to write about the whole sort of Far Eastern tour and Down Under tour and go into depth on that especially as it related to Jimmy Nichol. And then also, you know, that was the easy part actually getting that information because it was worldwide news, but finding out about Jimmy's early life and career and his post beatle life is what took a long time. You know, and you'd find one, just as you talk to someone on your show and then they suggest someone to you as a guest, I would always ask at the end of every interview, okay, so the last time you saw Jimmy was this time, and then where did he go? And they'd say, well, I don't know exactly, but I heard a rumor that he played with an instrumental band. And so that led me to the Spotniks in Sweden, and then they confirmed it. And so then that's another couple of years of information I could get by talking to the band members. Um, but then again, he left there and no one knew where he went. So each time, I would sort of have to start all over and find out where he went next. And I didn't want to publish the book until I could really complete, you know, his, his, at least his musical career.
0: What are, are there any other, you know, big beetle mysteries that you think the rock and roll detective should, mm. should cover or want or something that you'd like to cover?
1: Well, I don't know that there'd be a mystery, uh, that I would want to cover. I can't think of one at
0: this point. Or mystery but. or like a niche. A niche. Or a niche. But a
1: nit, you know, there might be uh, some niche. Um, there are a couple niche ideas. I don't think I want to um, mention them on your show because if I want to pursue it and I tell you right now, then someone else will whip that book out in a month and, yeah. and there, there, there it
0: goes. So well, you are the rock and roll person, detective. You have to keep some secrets.
1: Yeah, but I'm always superstitious about revealing new titles or new book ideas uh, until they're, until they're out there.
0: No worries.
1: Yeah, I'd love to tell you. Just like you know, every, if I, it's like if I tell you, I have to kill. Interview you. when the book came out, every single interview with every radio station or TV or whatever was. Well, where's Jimmy now? Was or or how does the book end? That was another one. Well, how's the book end? I'm like. Well, if I tell you how the book ended, who's going to want to read the book?
0: Oh. Well, I, I think I, I want to close out. I, I do this on the show. I'm, I'm going to hit you with some quick fire questions. Okay. What's your favorite Beatles song? You know my name, look up the number. Oh, wow. That's my favorite Beatles song. That's your favorite Beatles song? Yeah. Why is that your favorite Beatles song?
1: Well, because it's so out of character or outside the box for from everything they did, it's a, it was them having fun. It's like it paints a picture of you being in a nightclub almost. It the the rhythms change throughout the song. It makes you laugh.
0: Yeah. And it's, Welcome it's to Slayers. Happy.
1: Yeah, it's just a happy, funny tune, and um, that's just my go-to song.
0: I, I'm actually very happy you picked that. It's oh, it's one maybe. that I, I... Some people have actually picked that as their least favorite, which I don't understand at all.
1: Oh, well, ask me my least favorite. What's your least favorite? Mr. Moonlight. I just oh, never, no! I never liked that song. <laughs> I liked it. Oh, I we had a good thing going. Some, there's some... Funny live versions like from Hamburg or wherever where John hams it up and I, I prefer those to the to the straight recording. What's uh, the, your favorite
0: Beatles song? I think my favorite Beatles song is It's All Too Much.
1: Oh that's a cool one, yeah. Yeah. Have you heard you've heard the long longer version, right?
0: Yeah. That's pretty cool. It's like eight minutes or something. Yeah. And uh kind of you know, slightly bigger, what's your favorite Beatles album?
1: I would have to, I usually say Abbey Road. Um, I think that I loved the production sound, the fact that they, I think that that's maybe when they first got eight track recording for all the, for the whole album, maybe they had gone to some other places like Trident or wherever for songs, but it just, it just. Flows together so well. I, I like that the first side are individual songs, and then the second side eventually, you know, goes into that whole medley. Um, at the end, when the Beatles are, are, you know, the you have the three electric guitars each jamming their parts. I mean, there's just nothing better in rock and roll than that, than that musical segment in my mind. That's that's really what it's all about.
0: And again, on the flip side of that, what's your least favorite Beatle album? Mm-hmm.
1: I guess the Beatles' second album, maybe.
0: You're full of surprises today. It's really? whenever someone picks like a favorite, and it's from like the U.S., they almost always say the Beatles' second album.
1: Yeah, I mean, again, I grew up with the Capitol versions, uh, and so that that one I thought was. To me, it seemed like a hodgepodge, even then. Yeah. There's some great songs on there, but just as an album fitting together as a whole artistic project, that one just maybe is the least favorite.
0: Oh, it is a hodgepodge. Yeah, it is a
1: hodgepodge.
0: And lastly, the the big question of the night. It's it's all been leading up to this. Do you think Paul is dead?
1: No, Paul's definitely not dead. And I, and you know, one of the things that I found interesting was I thought of handwriting, you know, people have analyzed his voice before and after, and they have all their theories and whatnot. But I talked to Frank Chiazzo, who's the international expert on the Beatles autographs. Mm-hmm. And I said, if anybody could. You know, can anybody really fake someone else's autograph like that and and make it look the same? And he said, no, because I see people faking Paul's autograph every day. And he said, if you look at his autographs before the alleged accident and you look at them, you know, pretty soon thereafter, when he got off the farm and, you know, came back uh, to doing things, he said, it's the same guy. Same handwriting. He says handwriting is like a almost like a fingerprint. That's what we should do. We should get his early fingerprints and then get his fingerprints today. There's there's there's
0: another book right there. Yeah, I met
1: Paul two or three times. He seems to know his Beatle history pretty well.
0: (laughs) You heard it here first.
1: Right. He sounds the same to me. Of course I didn't meet him as a Beatle, so you know, I met him few times as a solo beetle really another really nice guy very down to earth
0: that's uh, that makes me happy to hear yeah and now i i turn things over to you where where can people find you in your books
1: well um the beetle who vanished you can find either at amazon or if you want a signed copy you can go to the beetle who and uh there's an order place there for that and um if people are interested just in signing up for the uh for future information and books and things that i'm doing uh they can they can go to my new site which is called musicmysterybook.com which will tell you a little bit about my next book and it'll also have it has a sign up place for uh you know a once every month or so newsletter. I try not to send people a lot of mishmash trash via email, just when something's going on. But um, that's a way to find out what's going on. And then if you really wanted to look at my whole career, you can either look up Jim Birkenstad at imdb.com or my site, which is Detective.com, And that's Everything I've done in entertainment is at that site.
0: Hi, I'm Ethan Alexanian, founder, president, and CEO of Fans on the Run. I hope you've enjoyed the show so far. I certainly have. Oh, what a good time it's been. The show is also streaming on all of the major podcast distribution platforms like Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and many more. If you're listening on any of those, please follow or subscribe to the show. And if you've enjoyed what you've listened to so far, please leave a review. We're on Facebook at Fans on the Run Podcast, Twitter at Fans on the Run Pod, and on Instagram at Fans on the Run Podcast, where I post all the graphics for the show, including this episode's graphic. If you have any requests of people you'd like to see on the show, questions, comments about an episode, or anything else, you can reach me at fansontherunpodcast.gmail.com. Thank you and have a wonderful evening. And with that being said, Jim, thank thank you so much for, for taking the time to, to talk with me today. Well,
1: thank you so much for having me on your show. It's a real honor, and I really enjoyed it. I thought the questions were really interesting and great, and a lot of different questions
0: that I've never never had before. So I really enjoyed it. Thank you. This ain't your papa's podcast. Right. <laughs> and to everyone else out there listening, thank you for listening. You can go home. Bands on the Run is produced by Ethan Alexander. Additional voiceovers by Richard Fulker. This has
1: been a Showtime Production.